And please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Genesis. We are in chapter 25, Genesis 25. Genesis is the first book of your Bible. And if you're using these black Bibles that we have provided for uh, you to either borrow or just have, uh, they're underneath the seats uh, around you. Uh, That's on page 18, Genesis chapter 25. So um, I'm kind of a a nerd um, in the sense that I actually enjoy a finely crafted, well-produced movie trailer. Um, I know I'm weird that way. Most of you like movies. I like trailers. Uh, what's really disappointing are those times where the, uh, the trailer turns out to be better than the movie. Uh, you get all excited and ginned up and you see the movie and you're like, really, is that, is that what this is all about? Uh, or better yet, uh, when the trailer actually gives away the entire movie, although that can be a good thing because then you can save yourself eight bucks. Uh, but the best of trailers are those that give you a good sense of what to expect. Uh, it doesn't give you too much, stirs up some interest, some anticipation for the story, gives you the basic idea uh, where things are going, but it, but it doesn't tell you exactly how you're going to get there, and so it leaves you wanting more. Uh, well, the, the text that we're going to look at today in Genesis 25 has been described by some as a trailer of sorts. Uh, as we begin to shift now, as the story begins to shift from Abraham, whose death we looked at last week in the first half of chapter 25, and now the transition uh, happens to his son Isaac. And in our text today, which details the surrounding, uh, the events surrounding the birth of Isaac's twins, Jacob and Esau, we actually have something like a trailer. It actually gives us some idea of where the story is headed, even though we don't know exactly how we're going to get there. Uh, But we are given just enough to make us eager to turn the page and find out more. Uh, Our text um, uh, is going to speak something of the future of Jacob's descendants, Israel. And uh, it's going to give us hints and clues in regards to God's larger plan to save the world, while, while also speaking a word uh, even to God's own dealings with you, revealing some things to expect from your own life. Some of those things you're going to welcome, some of those things maybe not so much. But ultimately, I pray that you will see embedded in this word, in this trailer, uh, a word of hope and encouragement for you and for all of God's people. So with that said, please stand with me now. Uh, out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. We stand at Harbin's Church as a way of just reminding ourselves that this word is not just the word of of man, it's not just uh, opinion, but it has authority because it comes from the living God. We're in Genesis chapter 25, and we're going to start at verse 19 and read on down through verse 26. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, 
all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for your help this morning in preaching this text. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help the congregation to hear your word through the Spirit and that we would walk away from this text encouraged, built up, convicted where necessary, challenged, encouraged, and most of all, loving Jesus even more. So help us now in these next few moments together. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As the story of Abraham comes to a close and we get to verse 19, uh, the first-time reader of Genesis might expect some sort of grand climactic event to happen. Uh, Since the beginning of Genesis, we've been tracing this theme of offspring. Uh, We've been tracing this promise that that in the wake of a titanic conflict between good and evil, one particular offspring would come and save the world and and defeat the serpent, the devil, and, and, and give blessing to a world that's trapped by sin and suffering and death. And we discovered that this offspring would come from a man named Abraham. And we followed his story and wonders of wonders in spite of Abraham's old age and in spite of Sarah's infertility, God works a miracle and the child of promise, Isaac, comes into the world. He's here at long last. The moment has arrived. And so, now what? (laughs) An easing of the tension? A resolution uh, to the conflict? A happy ending as the credits roll? No. On the contrary, we see increased tension and increased conflict and no obvious sense of resolution for God's people, at least on the surface. But remember, this is a trailer. This is a preview of coming attractions. We're not given the whole story, but we are given enough to keep us turning the page and we are given enough to give us hope. In our text today, there are three helpful words that God has for his people And the first one is that God's best blessings often come through the hardest trials. God's best blessings often come through the hardest trials. Earlier in chapter 25, we read this last week, uh, we read that God blessed Isaac, which means that God is with him and the favor of God is on him. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean to be blessed? It sounds good, right? That's something that we all want, but but we have this preconceived idea of what it means to be blessed. Uh, There are even Christian books out there, I I put Christian in quotation marks here, there are Christian books out there that actually tell you how to be blessed. I saw one just the other day. The title was The Blessing, How to Quickly Receive the Blessing from God. And it goes on to say on the cover, absolutely life-changing. Be blessed in life on a level you never imagined. And here's here's a description of the book. Your debt will soon disappear. You'll become empowered for success in every area of your life. Go from living a, a hard life to living a life of prosperity and health. You'll be amazed by how simple it is to receive. Sounds like some infomercials I've heard. 
And sadly, there are many books out there that are like that, that depict God's blessing as something that unlocks the door to material and physical prosperity, to a life shaped according to your preference. It makes me wonder if if authors of such books are reading the same Bible as I am or if they're reading the Bible at all. Well, let's read the Bible and let's see what blessing looked like for Isaac. As my mic falls off. This is verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. She was barren. Now, infertility is a painful thing at any time in any culture, but in the ancient Near East, the the blow was more crushing than anything most of us modern Western people can ever understand. The weight that was put on childbearing is much greater than than that it's put on on, on people in America today. Uh, While today, children are often seen not as blessings, but as burdens that get in the way of a couple's future, in the ancient Near East, children were blessings and were the future. Uh, To not have children was actually the burden back then, and there was a great stigma that barren women had to deal with. It It was not uncommon for such women to be looked down upon, to be seen not only as one not blessed by God, but even someone who may be cursed. Well, something must be wrong with you. You you must have done something bad. God is against you. Uh, That would have been a common assumption in that day. And so this would have been a real burden for Rebecca in more ways than one. Now, you may say, well, Deemer, keep reading. Yes, it says Rebecca was barren, but the very next sentence, it says Isaac prayed and Rebecca conceived. And so you look at verse 21, it says she was barren, Isaac prayed, boom, here comes a kid. Two, actually. Sounds like Isaac ordered that, that, that blessing book and he's been reading it. Got the blessing quickly, right? Now, hold on. Read the text carefully. How old was Isaac when he married Rebecca? says in verse 20, he's 40. How old was he when the twins were born? Verse 26, he was 60. So how long was Rebecca living under the weight of infertility? Do the math. 20 years, 20 years. For 20 years, Rebecca dealt with the pain and sorrow of this. Surely she started her marriage with grand and glorious expectations as we all do, but but for her even more so. She was marrying Isaac. She was marrying the child of promise. Through her would come blessing to uh, to the entire world. And don't think she did not know this. And don't think her family did not know this. When, when she had left home to go to the promised land to marry Isaac, uh, her family bestows a parting blessing on her. And it echoes the Abrahamic blessing. This is back in uh, chapter 24, verse 60, where it says, and they blessed Rebekah and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of 10,000s and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. On the one hand, few people had been bestowed with such honor as Rebecca had been given. But on the other hand, can you imagine having that kind of calling on your life? No pressure, Rebecca, but the fate of the cosmos rests in your ability to have children. Now, what would have made this 
even more painful was that Isaac's half-brother Ishmael was having kids left and right. Remember we read about that last week? Verses 13 through 16, all those names that we could not pronounce. Twelve sons, twelve princes, great tribal chiefs and heads of people groups. And, and Ishmael is the even godly. He's outside of the people of God. And, and, yet, and yet the score is Ishmael 12, Isaac 0. Think about how frustrated Isaac must have been during those 20 years. God, God, you've called me to do this. God, you've made these promises. God, I've got these desires to be a father. I've got these desires to be a blessing. Why is this not happening? And I think, though Isaac's calling is unique, I think the experience of wrestling with God during long periods of waiting during long periods of suffering and and unfulfilled desires, desires that are good, desires that are common to us all, desires that are biblical, and even some of those desires may be rooted in specific promises that God has made in his word. And instead instead of things panning out according to your desires, instead of getting blessings, it seems like all you get are hardships and trials and obstacles. Now, hear this. Sometimes we're tempted to think that the hardships that we face in life are signs that we are off track and that God is against us. You ever felt that way before? But if you're one of God's people, you need to know that God is always for you. There is, there is never, there is never a, a time when He's not for His people. Yeah, well, Deemer, things are so hard right now. Well, I'm sure they are, but God never told you things would be otherwise. Uh, does not Acts 14.22 tell you that through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God? Hardships, difficulty, that's the normal Christian experience. That, that's normal for the people of God. And so, we should, and so by the way, by, by implication, we should never judge or look down on people who have extremely difficult lives. Well, that person must not be walking with God because their life is a mess. Uh, We should not be like those disciples who saw the blind man and they asked Jesus, well, who sinned? Uh, His life is a wreck, so he must have had it coming. Uh, He must have committed some real doozies because look what's going on there. How harsh is that? Ultimately, God never brings trials into the lives of his people because he's mean, Instead, in hardship and trial, God is teaching his people and shaping them into the good thing that he wants them to be. This is why James writes in James chapter 1 that you should count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, that verse doesn't mean that Christians are supposed to be sadistic in the sense that we like suffering. It doesn't mean that that we shouldn't seek to relieve suffering in our own lives or in the lives of others. God's not calling us to like suffering. This verse instead is calling us to have hope in the midst of suffering and to take joy in the fact that your suffering will not ultimately destroy you. It won't ruin God's plans for you. It, it, it'll actually be used by God to serve God's good plan to strengthen you and perfect you. That, that word James uses there, uh, testing. In the Greek, that's the word dokimon, not Pokemon. 
I got some, some of the, the kids there, your ears just perked up. He's talking about Pokemon. It's Dokimon. And it's, uh, it's used to describe the process of refining gold so that it might be turned into something beautiful. And in that process, the refiner starts with metal that's been brought from the mines uh, that's in its ore state. And the ore contains imperfections that keep the metal from being strong and beautiful. And so the ore goes through a process that subjects it to extreme heat and breaks that ore down and liquefies it, boiling it. And through this process, the imperfections can be purged out. And the ore can be made and transformed into something more beautiful and something stronger than it ever was before it went through that very intense refining process. If you're a believer, it's like God has rescued you from the mines and you are a piece of ore and he looks at you and sees imperfection, a lot of them. But he also sees something more than that. God has, has looked past your imperfections and he knows how beautiful and how precious you can be. But to, but to get you from being ore to being that precious jewel, guess what he's got to do? He's got to turn up the heat. He, he's got to take you through some extreme things and it can be painful. But God has given you grace in those moments of affliction because he's purging out those imperfections. He's increasing your faith. He's strengthening your character and he's making you more like Christ, which is exactly what he promised. And so it's not just on the other side of the trial that you find blessing, but even in the trial, you're being blessed as the things you're going through are God's means of shaping you into something more beautiful. And I think some of you in this room must be on the road to being extremely beautiful because you're going through some extremely difficult things right now. So take heart. Even in the trials, God is bringing blessing into your life, he, and he will sustain you through the trial. One of my favorite verses to share with people who are going through extended periods of affliction is Psalm 68, 19, and it says, blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. I like that one. You may want to write that down. Psalm 68, 19. Now, Rebecca and Isaac are going through some serious refining, some serious purifying, but God has been daily bearing them up for 20 years. And why? Why, why is he doing this? What's the point? I like how Kent Hughes puts it. He says, because God is teaching his people that the promised blessing through the chosen seed of Abraham could not be accomplished by mere human effort. It's not in us to make these things happen. It's ultimately in Him. And, and this is why, and this is my second point, God's people must live in dependency on God's grace. God's people must live in dependency on God's grace. Isaac was the special, long-awaited child of promise. And Rebecca, we learned from the last chapter, Rebecca was a strong woman of noble character. They had a lot going for them. And yet they had nothing in and of themselves to make God's plans come true. And, and this, is, this is meant to, to drive the point home to all of God's people that God's salvation is by grace alone through God's sovereign power alone. His job is to do the work. Our, God is to, or our job is to trust Him for it. Now that doesn't mean that we're to be passive. But it does mean that in the final analysis, our experience is exactly what Jesus said it would be that apart from me, you can do nothing. 
And so now Isaac and Rebekah will need to trust God just as Abraham and Sarah did. And this is a lesson that continuously repeats itself throughout the whole Bible. I think it repeats itself because we need it. Because we're very self-sufficient and we're very overconfident in our own strength. And, And learning this lesson is so important that God will sometimes withhold certain good things that we desire so that we might better grasp this. You remember what Moses said to the Israelites in the, in the wilderness? He, he, he told them that God let them hunger. Do you remember this? Now, now he, he did provide them with miraculous bread in the, in the wilderness. But before he gave them that manna from heaven, he first let them go hungry. Why? Not out of meanness. But, Moses says, he let you go hungry. He, he did it to humble you and to make sure that you would know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, that you might know how to daily depend on God for every single need. And that in that, you might experience the blessing of drawing even nearer to God because he's the true sustenance, he's the true bread, he's the true source of life. And getting to that point is actually worth the affliction that it takes to get there. And it makes me wonder, what good thing might God be withholding from you right now that might be God's means of helping you to really get to that truth, to really grasp that, to really believe that and to experience that? For the Apostle Paul, it took a, an experience so difficult, so crushing, that he, is, he and his companions despaired of life itself. But in hindsight, Paul realizes that the, the blessing that God brought in the trial, he says in 2 Corinthians 1.9, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God is teaching Isaac, Rebecca, Old Testament Israel, the Apostle Paul, you, me, to depend on him for everything. And through her affliction, Rebecca is learning something glorious. She's learning that the fate of the cosmos actually does not rest on her ability to bear children. And that's a wonderful lesson. It instead relies on God, who raises the dead and gives life to dead wombs. Whatever we do for God, it is because God is doing it through us. This is how it always is for the people of God, for apart from him, we can do nothing. And so then that begs the question then, what, what, is it, what does that look like? What does, it really, what does it mean to really live in dependence on God? Well, I think we, we learn something here from Isaac. We, we learn something, uh, we see something implicit in the text and something explicit. Uh, the first, the implicit thing that we see here, Isaac responds to his trial in a way that's different than his father Abraham did. Abraham had experienced an extended period of childlessness as well. Abraham had a barren wife also. And how did Abraham respond? Disobedience. Abraham tried to take a shortcut, didn't he? And he tried to help God out. And he he married a, a younger and fertile second wife to try to make God's promise of offspring come true that way. It was an ends justifies the means response, and it was sin. It was wrong, and it was not blessed by God. But, on the other hand, and, and Isaac didn't do that. I think he learned some lessons from his dad. But, and the refusal to take shortcuts, the refusal to, to do that is 
actually an act of faith. Because let's face it, we've probably all been in situations where it was easier to sin than to obey God. And we justified it out of some sense of expediency or, or that it just seemed to make things more comfortable and uh, because, frankly, we don't trust God to provide for our needs. Adulterous affairs happen this way, y'all. Uh, one spouse feels miserable and justifies it. Well, God wouldn't want me to suffer, uh, so I'll just do this. Uh, people may steal or, or cheat on their taxes or are shady in their business practices uh, in an attempt to relieve financial anxieties instead of trusting the Lord to provide His way. In my own life, I've told little white lies because I felt like telling the truth would just open up a difficult can of worms that I did not want to deal with. All sin. All sin, from Adam's sin in the garden to your sin today, is an attempt to, prov- to provide for your, for your needs, perceived or real, in your own way, because you don't trust God to provide for them. Isaac doesn't compromise here, and he, he demonstrates great faith by remaining faithful to his bride. And he'd rather endure 20 years of barrenness with no end in sight than compromise his integrity. That's depending on God. Now, the other more explicit way we see Isaac rely on the Lord is through prayer. He prays. Prayer prayer really is the ultimate act of demonstrating dependence on God, isn't it? Uh, And prayer is a problem for many Christians today. Uh, Think about how the the days of, of many people begin. We get up in the morning, we wolf down some breakfast, maybe we read a few Bible verses, and then we rush out the door and we get going with our day, and we've hardly said a word at all to God. And while we say that we believe in prayer, what do our actions communicate? Our actions communicate the opposite of what Jesus said. Our actions communicate that what we really believe is that apart from him, we can do anything. And that's why, folks, for so many Christians, prayer ends up being a last resort. After I've done everything else, after I've exhausted all my resources and, 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 and I'm at the end of my rope, now at last I'll go ahead and pray. I've tried everything else, so I might as well give this a shot and I send up a prayer and keep my fingers crossed. Now, we may never say that so crassly, but often that is exactly how we act. Folks, there is a reason why the church prayer meeting is never the most popular meeting in any church. You don't see people busting down the doors to get to prayer meetings. Not like you, not like you do to other church events. And oh, how I would love us to be a different kind of people and be more like Isaac who doesn't just pray, but he perseveres in prayer for 20 years. Many of us don't have that kind of endurance and we become discouraged and we give up after just a brief time of prayer. But some of you in this room are, 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 are prayer warriors, and, and you're really good at this. You, you, you know what perseverance is like, and some of you have prayed for years and years and years for a family member to be saved, or, or maybe for the chance to, to, to minister in a, in a particular kind of way, or, or maybe a prayer for healing for, for many, many years in regards to a certain ailments. Sometimes people think that seeing immediate answers to prayer is a sign of great faith. But the Bible actually never promises immediate answers to prayer. On the contrary, 
I think one of the greatest evidences of faith is perseverance in prayer. What do you do when the answer does not come immediately? Uh, When the thing you're asking for is so slow to come. In Luke chapter 18, verse 1, it says that Jesus told the people a parable to the effect that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. Sometimes we lose heart and we feel like giving up in prayer. But Jesus gives assurance that God hears the cries of his people and God will respond. And we learn from other texts that while he may not respond in the exact way that you want him to, he will always respond in the very best way. But also, as we learn from Genesis 25, he responds in his own timing and very often his timetable is radically different than ours. And that's Again, where we need to have faith and trust his wisdom uh, in that, that he knows exactly the best time to answer that prayer in the specific way. And so, so Jesus doesn't just say pray one time, and since God has heard you, you don't need to pray anymore. And he doesn't just say, well, God's already promised you this thing, so you don't need to ask God for it at all. On the contrary, the Bible actually says you have not because you, you ask not. You know what that means? That means there are things that won't happen unless you pray for them. And so we're to pray and to keep on praying, not because God needs reminders, but because we do. We need reminders that God is in control and that we are not. We need reminders that we're completely and totally dependent on Him. And this is one of the benefits of persevering in prayer uh, we, we see this uh, wonderful, prayerful dependence explicitly in verse 21 where we're told that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And I'll put a parenthesis there, 20 years later, after 20 years of persevering prayer, the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Notice there that there is a direct connection between Isaac praying and God responding Now, some people will say, well, God God is sovereign and God is in control, so why pray? What's the point? But the Bible never tells you to respond to God's sovereignty in that way. Instead, we are to respond by saying, because the Lord is sovereign, I will pray. John Calvin writes that Isaac teaches us by his example to persevere in prayer So God also shows that he never turns a deaf ear to the wishes of his faithful people, although he may long defer the answer. And so, living in daily reliant dependence on the Lord, uh, walking by faith, that's that's a normal part of the Christian life. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 10 says, Who among you fears the Lord? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God third word from this text, the third thing we learn, God's grace and favor comes to the unworthy and the least likely. God's grace and favor comes to the unworthy and the least likely. And I love this word. (laughs) So God graciously answers Isaac's prayer and Rebecca conceives, but the trial of barrenness gives way to another trial, as is often the case in our own lives, right? Verse 22 says the children struggled together within her. Uh, That Hebrew word translated as struggled, that's a a very violent word. It's literally saying something like the children smashed themselves inside of her, smashing themselves against one another. 
Uh, The word is used in the book of Judges for skulls being crushed. There is a battle royal going on inside of her. And it is so bad. Look at what she says. If it is thus, why is this happening to me? Now, the, the, the English here does not capture the sense of dismay and struggle that Rebecca is going through. The, the Hebrew is notoriously difficult to translate, but many scholars believe that the sense of what Rebecca is saying here is that if, if this is like this, why am I even alive? What's the point? And so she is going through unbelievable physical upheaval and pain, and she despairs of life. And again, it would have been easy, I guess, for some to harshly judge her. Well, first she was barren for 20 years, and she finally does get pregnant, and now she's practically dying. What's wrong with this girl? Uh, She's not being blessed by God, obviously. If she was, things would be going a lot easier for her. But the turmoil in her body is not evidence that God is against her. It's actually evidence that God is on the move, and God's about to do something big through her. At the end of verse 22, we're told that Rebecca inquires of the Lord, so like Isaac, she is depending on the Lord. Isaac and Rebecca really shine in this story, don't they? They they don't shine so much a little later, but right now, this is good. We'll enjoy this. She inquires of the Lord, and she gets a word. It says, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. She's probably saying it sure feels like it. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from you, from within you, shall be divided. So the struggle that's going on in her womb is a a preview trailer, so to speak, uh, that that looks forward to things to come. These two boys in Rebecca's womb will be two nations, which will be in conflict with one another, uh, which continues the conflict conflict motif that began back in Genesis 3.15 between the children of God and the children of the serpent, between God's people and the devils. Um, from the younger child, Jacob, comes the nation of Israel. From the older child, Esau, comes the Edomites. And throughout the scriptures, we see lots of hostility and open warfare between these two peoples. But in addition to the prophecy of conflict, even more shocking is a prophecy of reversal where God says, uh, the, the, one, the one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. In other words, the younger son will rise to prominence and receive the blessing and the inheritance of Abraham and Isaac. It would be Jacob, not Esau, who would carry the promises of God forward. Now, once again, this is a trailer. It's a, it's a preview of one of God's favorite ways to work, namely, working through the very least likely and the least worthy. The fact that the younger will be greater than the older, that's not too much of a big deal to us today. That doesn't really hit us between the eyes. But back then, back then, this would have been shocking and even scandalous. Because in the ancient Near East, it was the firstborn that was to receive the inheritance and and leadership in the family. Nobody expected the younger to amount to anything significant. Nobody regarded the younger as somebody special. Uh, That the younger would take that role was completely unexpected and against conventional wisdom and cultural expectations. To go that route seemed foolish to everybody. But folks, this is typical God. He goes against what seems wise to us. He goes against what seems to make sense according to our wisdom and our understanding and our ways. Now, in that day, 
it would have made sense for God to choose one who is considered worthy because he is the oldest. In our day, we modern Americans would sneer at that, right? That's so backwards and primitive. Uh, Instead, what really makes sense is for God to choose someone considered worthy because he's good. (laughs) But again, God subverts our expectations. Verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Now, we'll talk more about Esau in the future. I have a lot to say about Esau probably next week. But in a nutshell, he's all brawn and no brains. And worse, no morality and no decency. Esau will be a man of passion, living for the moment, living for his appetites, living for himself. And so in light of that, it would not be surprising to us at all that God would not choose Esau. But not so fast. Coming out on the heels of Esau, literally, is Jacob clinging to his brother. This is the one whom God will choose. And our impulse would be to think, well, I guess this is because Jacob is better than Esau. He's more worthy and and more deserving of God's favor. Is that why God chooses Jacob? Is that why God chooses anybody? In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul gives us more insight into what God was doing. And he writes that when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Uh, Though they were not yet born and had not done either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. So here we're told that God's election of Jacob is unconditional. It's unconditional. It's not like God was looking into the future and saying, all right, I'm seeing Esau, and I'm seeing Jacob. And based on how they're behaving, I'm going to choose Jacob. He seems like a pretty swell guy. He's on my team. It's not how it works. God's choosing, God's salvation is not conditional at all, which, by the way, is good news for Jacob. Because, don't miss this, if it was conditional, Jacob would be in big trouble, big trouble, because when God looks into the future and sees Jacob, it is not impressive at all. In fact, over the next several weeks, we begin to read more and more about Jacob. You will not be impressed either, but you really don't have to look too far in the future to know that. Uh, We learn things about Jacob from his very birth. Verse 26, afterwards his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Jacob comes out holding Esau's heel. Now, we are not meant to read that as brotherly affection, as if Jacob is saying, oh, I love my brother so much, I just want to be with him, I just got to be with him. That's not what's going on. Instead, Jacob is screaming, no, I will be first. I will be first. And if he had the wherewithal, he would have pulled Esau back in, got around him, and popped out himself. I will be first. He's fighting, he's grappling, and he's selfishly wrestling for position. And guess what? He's going to do this 
for many, many years. Throughout so much of his life, he's going to do this until one day he grapples with God. But that's for another sermon. Can't give the whole story away now. This is just a preview. But the boy's named Jacob. Very often in the Bible, the names of people pointed to things about them, about their character, about what they would be. And the name Jacob uh, means something like heel grabber, (laughs) but in the sense of one who comes from behind, or one who is cunning and wins through cleverness and wit. It's not necessarily a flattering name. Sorry, Jacob. We have a Jacob over here. That's how it worked in the Old Testament. It doesn't work that way anymore. You're one of the good guys. As we move forward in the story, we're going to see a whole lot of things about Jacob that are going to really frustrate us and make us mad. Jacob takes advantage of and manipulates Esau. We'll talk about that soon. Later on, we'll see him to be a liar and a trickster, even lying and deceiving his own father. Uh, he, He is shrewd. He is cunning, and Jacob is going to be the kind of man that you just can't trust him as far as you could throw him. Honestly, I don't know about you, but I would much rather go hunting and fishing with Esau than plotting and scheming with Jacob. Esau, in some ways, will seem more likable. Rugged, tough, outdoorsy type seems to be, in some ways, more of a heroic figure, though he has his problems too, and we'll talk about those soon, but... Nevertheless, God says the older will serve the younger. God has his eye fixed on Jacob, and he chooses him. And our impulse may be to object to this and accuse God of injustice and say, well, wait a minute, that's not fair. You reject Esau, and you choose Jacob? And so to answer that, we have to go back to Romans 9, where the Apostle Paul, as smart as he is, and also being inspired by the Holy Spirit, that helps also. (laughs) He anticipates this exact objection of injustice and unfairness. And he says in Romans 9, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens or judges whomever he wills. There's absolutely no injustice going on if you read Romans 9. Think about it this way. Is it wrong for God to reject Esau? No. God's not obligated to choose Esau. Why? Because Esau is a sinner. Book of Hebrews describes him as unholy, a profane and immoral man. And so if Esau doesn't get chosen and he gets judgment, all that means, y'all, is that he gets exactly what he deserves. That's not injustice. That's justice. (laughs) On the other hand, is God obligated to choose Jacob? No. Jacob is a sinner too. But if God chooses Jacob, is that injustice? No. No. It's mercy. One gets justice. One gets mercy. No one gets injustice. 
And the amazing part about it all is not that Esau is rejected and gets justice. That's not shocking to us. That's not scandalous to us. We would expect that. Guilty person should get justice. What is shocking, what is absolutely mind-boggling and gloriously mind-blowing is that Jacob is accepted and gets mercy. And so the biggest mystery is not why would Esau get justice, but why would anyone get mercy? Why do, why do liars and tricksters and adulterers and murderers and arrogant self-righteous people and all-around scoundrels like you and me get mercy? And friends, that is the most surprising twist in the whole Bible story. I love how Ian Duguid puts it. He says that God wants to make it clear from the start that there is no favoritism with him. There are no privileged positions. Being born of Abraham is not enough. Being born of Isaac and Rebekah is not enough. Being the oldest child is not enough. Our salvation is all of grace, not of our merit. God is no respecter of persons. He chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chooses the unfavored younger son to show that all is of grace from start to finish. If the message of this book, if the message of the Bible was all of y'all are gonna get exactly what you deserve in the end, folks, that would be the worst news in the world. But instead, the Bible is a story of God's glorious, sovereign grace, which is the best news in the world. This this is what distinguishes Christianity from, from other religions, other religions that teach you that you have to be special enough, that you have to be good enough, that you have to be awesome enough. You somehow have to find a way to mitigate all the baggage in your life and make up for it. You've got to fix yourself up, clean yourself up, get God's attention, be impressive enough, be strong enough, have enough wonderful things about yourself to commend to God, and maybe if you're lucky, if you can be better than other people, he'll show you mercy. That's horrible news. Because I'm not awesome. Thanks be to God that Christianity isn't for winners. It's for losers, This is God's standard operating procedure, y'all. Losers are the only kinds of people he saves. God loves, loves, loves to show favor to people that everyone else would sneer at and look down upon. Whether it's a woman 20 years barren or a heel grabber like Jacob or a Gentile prostitute like Rahab or the youngest of eight brothers who was a lowly shepherd like David. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. God constantly shocks us and scandalizes us and subverts our expectations over and over again. But if you think that's something, all of those acts of God that we read about are but previews and trailers of God's greatest and most shockingly scandalous work to come. When a descendant of Jacob is born in Bethlehem. Under the radar of everyone else except for a descendant of Esau named Herod. He's the only one who recognizes this child as a threat and and he is seeking to destroy him. 
Because Herod, like all of us, wants to be king of his own life. And he tries to kill him. And he fails. And then after that, for years, this child disappears into obscurity. He leads a humble and quiet life. He's not wealthy. He's not powerful according to worldly standards. He's not impressive. He's a carpenter's apprentice who years later emerges from the region of Galilee. On the surface, he seems unworthy. He's not not trained by the elite Jewish rabbis. He's not part of the respected circles and religious cliques in Jerusalem. The prophet Isaiah compares him to a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He's not one of the Hollywood celebrities all painted and airbrushed. He's from a backwater, unimportant hick town called Nazareth. People there had funny accents. The high and and mighty religious folks in Jerusalem thought Galilee was bad enough, but Nazareth, are you kidding me? Nothing good comes from Nazareth, they said. But from that town comes the one to whom is foretold will come the obedience of the nations, one who is the very son of God. And this Jesus of Nazareth defeats the serpent, not by killing him, but by being killed, being nailed to a wooden cross. You know, whatever might have been said about Rebecca in her trials was said all the more about Jesus during his. As the people see this man hanging naked on a cross and saying, really, this man, are you kidding me? He is surely not blessed by God. This man is cursed by God. Bible says cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. If he were really blessed, things would be going well for him. Things would be going easier for him. And yet, once again, God subverts our expectations and undermines conventional human wisdom and the things that make sense to us. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here's the genius of the cross. If if God had accepted any sinner who still had sins unpaid for, that would have been wrong. That would have been injustice. You want to talk about injustice? That would be it. It would be like letting a criminal go free when everybody knows he's guilty and needs to go to jail. But here's the wisdom of the cross, the thing that totally shocked us and surprised us, something that we could never come up with on our own. Jesus, in his dying, takes the sins of the world on himself, the sins of people like Jacob, the sins of people like you, the sins of people like me, and God punishes those sins in him, and that payment for sins counts for all of God's people. Jesus gets the justice and his chosen people get the mercy. And then in no sense is there injustice when God forgives sinners. And Jesus' resurrection from the grave proved to the universe that he alone was the one who was ever truly worthy in the first place, which is why he and he alone can save. And so now as we bring this all to a close, the lingering question for some could be, okay, Well, if salvation doesn't depend on my will, as Paul says in Romans 9, and it depends on God's mercy, if he does 
the choosing, then I guess it doesn't matter what I do. I mean, I want to be saved. I want mercy, but what if God hasn't chosen me? And my response to that would be that the Bible never tells you to have that fatalistic kind of attitude. Que sera, sera, well, whatever will be, will be. The Bible never tells you to do that. The same Paul who in Romans 9 speaks of God's election of sinners is also the same Paul who in Romans 10 says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, in light of that, I will do what Paul does, and that is urge you to call on his name, to call on Jesus, to trust his work on the cross, turning from your sins, seeking to follow him. If you do that, you too will be saved. You too will find yourself among those God has chosen to show his mercy to. As you, as you then join a multitude of fellow unworthy and unlikely converts who also have found God's sovereign mercy and favor and blessing. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, how we thank you for your sovereign grace, and oh, how we thank you that Your demonstration of mercy to sinners is not conditional. It's not based on how good we are. It's not based on our merits. It's not based on how impressive we are. We thank you for that, Father, because none of us in and of ourselves are good, are impressive, or have any merits. And so we thank you, Father, and we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the only one who is worthy, the only one who is good, the only one who is perfect. And what an amazing thing that you did to slaughter your son to save heel grabbers and scoundrels like us. Help us, Father, to be forever grateful for that and help us to remember the overarching lesson that we must depend on you for everything. Everything in our life, everything that you've called us to do, everything that you've called us to be, it's all about you and it's not about us. So help us to live in that way and help us to be a people who, if we're going to boast, let us boast in the Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.